Well, thank you for being here as we begin this new study in the book of Ephesians. Uh, I wanted to remind you that we've provided for you a reading guide, and I know that the previous guides have been pretty easy to follow, and so you may or may not really need the guide. This month, the suggested reading plan, of course you read it any way you want to, but the suggested reading plan for this month uh, is a little bit different and quite detailed. And so I just encourage you, if you would like a reading guide and join us in the reading of Ephesians, I put some up on the front row, and you can pick it up. Uh, for example, the first three days, we're reading Acts 19 and 20 to kind of set the stage uh, for the book of, of Ephesians. So we've read that this week. We've read each chapter of Ephesians this week, um, finishing chapter 6 tomorrow. And then here's the reason you need the reading guide. Beginning on Tuesday, if you follow this plan, beginning on Tuesday, we're starting to break down Ephesians just a few verses at a time. And in addition to that, there is a, a devotional that you can link to at Bible.com on that particular passage. For example, on Tuesday, we're reading Ephesians 1, verses 1 through 6, and there is a corresponding devotional related to that that you can get online. So that's why I'm kind of pushing that this time, that if you don't have a reading guide, pick one up and join us as we read through the book of Ephesians. And these, again, are on the front pew. Uh, feel free to, to take one with you. I know that you are also studying Ephesians in uh, BSF, and it was intentional, I think, three times this year, as we can do the 10 books for 2019, it was an in intentional decision to say, okay, let's cover that book while you're studying in Bible school, uh, not Bible school, uh, uh, Bible study fellowship. So the, the intention is not to try to, you know, overload you or anything or try to compete with, with what you guys are doing on Sunday morning. The, contention, uh, the intention is to complement uh, what you guys are doing and kind of add some more detail. Uh, so... I hope that this will be helpful to read through Ephesians throughout this month, study it in BSF, and, and also on Sunday nights. Uh, I have reviewed the material that you're using in BSF. I'm going to try my best not to duplicate what you've already learned. Uh, there may be a little bit of an overlap, but my goal is to, to talk about some aspects of the book that you wouldn't have time to discuss in class. However, I do want to read the introduction to Ephesians from your BSF commentary. Uh, it's so well written and really, I thought, is a good introduction to the book. So I want to read this and then we're going to look at the video from BibleProject.com and jump into our study. So this is introduction from our, our BSF commentary. It says, according to much popular culture these days, being spiritual is in vogue. I would agree with that. You, you watch a lot of the movie stars, for example, they talk about their spirituality and their, you know, that the, they have spiritual beliefs. That, that's kind of in vogue now. Being connected to a church, however, is thought by many to be old-fashioned at best and harmful at worst. Have you ever heard someone say, oh, I believe in God and in Jesus, I just don't believe in the church? That's becoming more and more of a prevalent attitude. Talk to people about faith. Yeah, I believe in God. Yeah, I believe in Jesus. I just don't believe in church. I don't believe in organized religion. Is another thing that you'll hear people say. How could such an unbiblical attitude have arisen? 
Far too many people have had traumatic church experiences throughout the years. Perhaps a once trusted church leader fell into serious moral failure or worse, committed a crime and was arrested. Maybe some long-standing Christian fellowships were ruined by malicious gossip. Yet there is good news concerning the church if we will only pay attention to the New Testament teachings about the church. In this regard, Ephesians may be the best Bible book to help us understand God's creation of the church and his plan to display his glory in Christ through the church forever. I wish I could highlight that with you and say that's really what it's all about. That this book called Ephesians is really a book about the church, God's creation of the church, and his plan for the church to glorify Jesus Christ through the church forever. The Apostle Paul, he says, the, the author here, the Apostle Paul loved the church. And after many years as a traveling gospel evangelist and church planner, Paul's teachings about what the church is, that is doctrine of the church, and what churches are to do, the practice of the church, came together brilliantly in his letter to the Ephesians. Half of the letter is basically doctrine about the church, what the church is. The other half of the letter of Ephesians is more practical about what the church does. He says, in our journey through these 13 studies, we'll be reminded that the church is God's masterpiece that was conceived in eternity and manifested in history through Jesus Christ, the Savior and Lord of the church. I don't know that we'll have time to get into it tonight. If not, we'll talk about it, hopefully, Lord willing, next Sunday night. This whole concept that the church was conceived in eternity. Uh, I'm really chomping at the bit to, to dig into that with you, but, but we'll go on and try not to get tied down right now. He says, the author says, we'll discover that those, think, those who think they no longer need the church have seriously misunderstood the church. We might, even become, we might even become God's instruments for helping some of them re-engage as active worshipers and participants in the life of a growing Christian congregation. Great introduction to what the letter is all about. And as we normally have, we want to watch this little eight-minute video to help you kind of get a big picture of the book of Ephesians. And this is from BibleProject.com. Let's watch this together. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. The story of how Paul came to the city of Ephesus is really interesting. You can go read about it in Acts chapter 19. Ephesus was a huge city. It was the epicenter of worship for most of the Greek and Roman gods. And for over two years, Paul had a really effective missionary presence there, and lots of people became followers of Jesus. Years later, after being imprisoned by the Romans, Paul wrote this letter. The movement of thought in the letter divides into two really clear halves. In the first half, Paul is exploring the story of the gospel, how all history came to its climax in Jesus and in his creation of this multi-ethnic community of his followers. The second half of the letter is linked to the first by the word, therefore. And here Paul explores how the gospel story should affect how we live every part of our life story personally, in our neighborhoods and communities, and in our families. So let's dive in, and we can see how Paul develops all of this. Chapter 1 opens with a beautiful Jewish-style poem where Paul praises God the Father for the amazing things that he has done in Christ Jesus. From eternity past, the Father has purposed to choose and bless a covenant people. And think here, the family of Abraham and Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And through Jesus now, anyone can be adopted 
into that family. Jesus' death covers our worst sins, our worst failures, and in Jesus we find God's grace. In fact, Paul says that grace has opened up a whole new way for us to understand every part of our lives. He says in chapter 1 verse 10 that God's purpose was to unify all things in heaven and on earth under Christ, which is a title that means Messiah. God's plan was always to have a huge family of restored human beings who are unified in Jesus the Messiah. This divine purpose became clear, Paul says, when we were first made into that family. And here he's referring to ethnic Jews in the family of Abraham. But then Paul talks about how you, and here he means non-Jews, you all heard about Jesus and the salvation through him. And you were also brought into this family by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so here he's referring to the events told in the stories of Acts about how God's Spirit brought together Jew and non-Jew into one family in Jesus. It's just like God promised to Abraham long ago. Notice also how in this poem, Paul begins by talking about God the Father, but then about Jesus the Son, and then here at the end about the Spirit. All three work together as Paul tells the story of the gospel. It's really cool. After the poem, Paul responds with a prayer. He prays that these followers of Jesus would not just know about but personally experience the power of the gospel, that they would be energized by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and placed him as the exalted head of the whole world. Now, in chapter 2, Paul goes back and he elaborates on some key ideas from the poem in chapter 1, especially God's grace and this new multi-ethnic family of Jesus. He begins by retelling the story of how these non-Jewish Christians came to know Jesus. Before hearing about Jesus, they were physically alive, but they were spiritually dead. They were trapped in a purposeless life of selfishness and sin, and they were deceived by dark spiritual forces of evil. But amazingly, God in his great love and mercy, he saved them, he forgave all of their sins, and he joined their lives to Jesus's resurrection life, and he's brought them back to life too. And so now, having been created as new human beings through Jesus, they have the joy of discovering all of the new calling and purposes and tasks that God has set before them. Not only have they been shown God's grace, they've also been invited into a new family. Before hearing about Jesus, these non-Jewish people, they were not just cut off from God, they were cut off from his covenant people, the family of Abraham. And for a really practical reason, the commands of the Sinai covenant, they formed like a boundary line around the family. They were like a barrier that kept most non-Jewish people away. But in Jesus, the laws of the Torah have been fulfilled and the barrier is removed. The two ethnic groups have become, as Paul puts it, a new unified humanity that can live together in peace. So Paul goes on in chapter 3 to marvel at the unique role that he got to have in spreading this good news to non-Jewish people. And even though he's in prison, he's thanking God for the chance he's had to see this covenant family grow so huge. So Paul closes the first half of the letter with another prayer. This time he prays that Jesus' followers would be strengthened by God's Spirit to simply grasp and comprehend the love that Christ has for his people. The second half of the letter begins with Paul shifting gears, and he starts challenging the reader to respond to the gospel story by how they live their own life story. So he starts in chapter 4 with just the everyday life of the church. The church is a big family with lots of different kinds of people, but he emphasizes that they are one. And one is a key word in this chapter. They are one body that's unified by one spirit. They have 
have one Lord with one faith. They have one baptism. They believe in one God. That's a lot of unity. However, Paul says unity is not the same thing as uniformity. He goes on to explore how Jesus's new family consists of lots of very, very different kinds of people, but they're all empowered by the one Holy Spirit, each using their unique talents and passions to serve and to love each other and to build up the church. And here he uses two really cool metaphors. One is building up the church as a new temple. And the second is that they are all becoming a new humanity with Jesus as the head. And this new humanity is a metaphor he's going to then run with for the next couple chapters. Paul challenges every Christian to take off their old humanity, like a set of old clothes, and to put on their new humanity in which the image of God is being restored. And he then goes on into this long section where he compares this new and old humanity. So instead of lying, new humans speak truth. Instead of harboring anger, they peacefully resolve their conflicts. Instead of stealing, new humans are generous. Instead of gossiping, they encourage people with their words. Instead of getting revenge, new humans forgive. Instead of gratifying every sexual impulse, new humans cultivate self-control of their bodily desires. Instead of getting drunk, new humans come under the influence of God's Spirit. And he spells out what that influence looks like in four different ways. The first two have to do with singing, singing together, but also singing alone. And this is really interesting that the first thing that Paul thinks of about how the Spirit works in the lives of Jesus' people is singing and music. The third sign of the Spirit's influence is being thankful for everything. And the fourth is that the Spirit will compel Jesus' followers to put themselves underneath others and to elevate others as more important than themselves. And Paul actually expands on this fourth point by showing how it works in Christian marriage. So you have a wife who follows Jesus. She is called to respect and to allow her husband to become responsible for her. And the husband is called to love his wife and to use his responsibility to lay down his selfish agenda and to prioritize his wife's well-being above his own. And Paul says it's this kind of marriage that's actually reenacting the gospel story. The husband's actions mimic Jesus and his love and his self-sacrifice. The wife's actions mimic the church, which allows Jesus to love her and to make her new. Paul then applies the same idea to children and parents as well as slaves and masters. Paul closes out the letter by reminding these Christians of the reality of spiritual evil. These are beings and forces that will try to undermine the unity of Jesus' people and to compromise their new humanity. And so Paul challenges them to stand firm and to put on this metaphorical set of body armor, which he describes in detail. And Paul has drawn all of these pieces of body armor from the book of Isaiah and how Isaiah depicted the messianic king. And so now, as the Messiah's followers, we need to make the Messiah's attributes our own since we make up Jesus's body. Practically, I think Paul means for Christians to begin to form habits, proactively using prayer and the scriptures and our relationships with each other to help us grow and mature as followers of Jesus. And that's the letter to the Ephesians. Very powerful. It's where Paul summarizes the whole gospel story and how it should reshape every part of our life story. Uh, did you see the sunglasses on that soldier? Anybody else notice that? You have to go back and watch it online to see if, what I'm telling you. Would you join me as I pray as we 
start to our, our study through Ephesians. Father, uh, there's no way that our, our hearts and our minds can fully grasp what you decided in eternity uh, to do in and for and through the church. But I do ask that as we study tonight and as we read the book throughout this month and as we have other nights where we open the word, I do ask that you give us deeper insight and deeper appreciation for what you've done and for what you want to do through your body, the church. God, I pray especially tonight that you would enable me and empower me, help me to, to teach this lesson. I ask for your anointing. I ask for God just for your spirit to be our teacher and to be our guide. I know my limits. I, I know, God, I don't have anything that I can offer these people that's going to change their life. I'm, I don't have anything I can say that's going to make a difference for them. But God, as we see your word, as we understand your word, as you speak to us through your word, certainly, uh, then it can be life-changing. So that's what we pray for. That's our desire. That's our request. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Have you ever seen time-lapse photography? You've got an example there on the screen. Uh, it's always kind of fascinated me how, and I'm not exactly sure I can explain how they do it, but taking a series of photographs over time and then uh, changing the speed or something like that as, as they're playing it. And so they can do it in such a way that, for example, if you photograph a flower, and once they get all the photographs together and, and overlay them and change the speed, then, then all of a sudden, when they play it back, it looks like you're watching the flower grow and bud and develop right before your very eyes. It's kind of a fascinating thing to watch. And I was thinking about, you know, it would be amazing if you could do that for history you kind of had a, a machine somehow, a camera somehow, that you could do a time lapse of history. It'd be interesting to, to focus the camera on certain things. And I, I think it would be intriguing to focus the camera, if you had a time lapse camera, focus the camera on the church at Ephesus. How it developed, how it came to be, and how, how it grew into what it was. And so tonight, that's kind of the approach I'm going to be taking. We're going to do a time lapse history, if you will of the church at Ephesus, just to help us understand the foundation of the book. Next Sunday night, we'll dig more into what the text is talking about. Uh, we'll be looking at text, certainly, but we're going to be in Acts and other places uh, as we look through this. So, the, the first picture that I would have, if you're going to take some notes, I, I try to make kind of a little diagram there for you that we'll work our way through. The first picture in our time-lapse photography of history would be a picture of perhaps something sprouting. And, and I would give it the date of A.D. 52. We don't know exactly, but that, that's a pretty close date. Paul's second missionary journey, during his second missionary journey, he visited Ephesus after leaving the city of Corinth. And evidently, while he was there, planted the church in Ephesus. It, it could be that he planted it on, his sec, on the next trip, but let's just read the text. I'll show you what I'm talking about. Acts chapter 18 is where we're going to go because Acts chapter 18, 19, and 20 really tells the story of Paul going to, to Ephesus and how the church was started there. So Acts chapter 18, beginning to verse 18. Paul 
Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Again, this is his second missionary journey. Then he left the brothers and sailed for Syria and accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Sincrea because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with who? Paul's habit, you know this probably, his habit is described there for us very well. His habit when he got to a new area was to go into the synagogue first, speak to the Jews first. If they were responsive, he continued to speak to them in the synagogue and to speak to the Jews. If they were not responsive, his next step would then to go outside the synagogue somewhere else and, and share the gospel with the Gentiles. But it was always synagogue Jews first when he went to a new area and then the Gentiles. You'll see that in just a moment play out. So verse 19, uh, he went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Verse 20, when they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. So here's his first meeting of the people in Ephesus. It doesn't say that he started the church then, but he met with the people in the synagogue, certainly was sharing the gospel, and it is quite reasonable to say uh, perhaps led some people to faith in Christ, and maybe, maybe we just see the, 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 the beginning stages, if you will, the sprouting of a New Testament church here. And I want to show you a map here uh, help you to understand some of these areas we're going to be reading about. Uh, Ephesus is located in West Asia Minor near the Asian Sea. Let me get my glasses on so I can lead you through this map. Uh, right now I want you to focus on those areas of the map that are, are orange in color. Uh, on the very bottom, of, these are the regions that I want you to focus on. The very bottom you see uh, Egypt. And then going up towards the right there you'll see Israel. And then on around the Mediterranean, you come to Asia. And then on right across is Greece. And on over to the left is Italy. So those are just some of the major regions that Paul went on his missionary journeys. He covered all of those areas. All right? Now, the next slide, that's where Ephesus is. So, again, if you look down in the right-hand corner, you see where Israel is. Paul leaving this area, traveling the world, and one of the places he stopped was in Ephesus, which is in Asia or Asia Minor. Would you notice it's on the coast? Ephesus is just off the coast uh, of the Asian Sea. A beautiful area, and that's where Paul went when he went to meet the people for the first time. How many of you have visited? I know some of you have visited uh, Ephesus, which is now in modern-day Turkey. That's where Ephesus is now, modern-day Turkey. How many have visited Ephesus? Raise your hand. Hold it up. All right. All right. So some of you could say you could share some pictures with us, and you could tell us what the, what it looks like to see the ruins. I actually hope to go there sometime, uh, in Lord willing, in, in the future, somewhere, sometime. Uh, rather than an Israel trip, we might be doing another trip. But that's all we'll say about it right now. Uh, but Ephesus is one of the places I want to go. You can still walk the city of Ephesus today. You can walk the ruins of the city of Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was the leading city in the Roman province of Asia Minor. 
Uh, give me a leading city in, in the United States. What would you say are some of the leading cities in the United States? New York City. And it's interesting, it's on the harbor, right? Or, or I don't know, Pam, you've been there a lot of times. Is it, is it the harbor? What do they call that there? Hudson River? Okay, yeah. So there's, there's, there's a lot of water there, ships coming in, people traveling through because of where it's located. Uh, that's the way Ephesus was. Because of where it was located, there in the western part on the shore uh, of, of what we would call Turkey today or, or uh, Asia Minor, it was located there near the shore. It was on the Asian Sea. Uh, so it, it really became a, a, a hub, an economic hub of both land and sea trade. Uh, people coming and going from all different directions. Very popular. Kind of the New York City of its day. That's probably a, a very good comparison. The New York City of its day. Now, the first glimpse we get in Acts of Ephesus uh, is, is this one that we just read about. Paul going there on his second missionary journey, speaking the gospel into the lives of the Jews there in the synagogue, and perhaps the birth, the slight birth sprouting of a new church. Now the second picture is this one. I'm calling it weeding, and you'll see why in a moment. Weeding. And the years here would, would be around the years 54 to 56. Around the years 54 to 56. After Paul completed his second missionary journey, he went on a third missionary journey. And during that third missionary journey, he went back to Ephesus. And the interesting thing is, he stayed at Ephesus longer than he stayed at any other place. As far as recorded in Acts. Now, now hear that again. He stayed in Ephesus longer than he stayed any other place on his missionary journeys. Uh, so let's read the text and you'll see what I'm talking about. Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19 verse 1. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. So this is his second time to come into the city. There he found some disciples and he asked them... Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered, no. We've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Very interesting text here. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. And Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. John's baptism was basically a baptism of looking forward to the one that would come, that God was sending another one who, who would be their Savior. So he told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. In other words, he was saying to them, don't put your faith in John, you need to put your faith in Jesus. And so on hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied, and there were about 12 men in all. So this could be the birth of the church. If it wasn't in chapter 18, then certainly we're seeing the birth of the church in chapter 19. Verse 8, now watch what happens. This is so important. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. He followed the pattern he always followed. Go to the synagogue, share the gospel with the Jews. And how long was he in the synagogue, church? Three months. Let's keep reading. 
But some of them, some of these Jews in the synagogue, some of them became obstinate. They hardened their hearts, is really what the word means. And, and it says they refused to believe. They became obstinate. They hardened their hearts. They refused to believe. It was a, it was, it was a, a closed door. They, they deliberately closed that door of their heart. And not only that, they publicly maligned the way. I don't know if you've ever noticed that in Scripture before, but the first Christians were called followers of the way. Uh, before they were ever called Christians, Christ's followers, they were called people of the way. And it was because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. So that was the first name for the Christians. What we call Christians, they were called people of the way. And so here you have the Jews who are refusing to believe and publicly maligning, shaming people of the way, all right, followers of Jesus. So what did Paul do? So Paul left them, and he took the disciples with them and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And this went on for how long? For two years. So that, watch this, this is so important. It's or highlighted in my Bible. So that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Uh, Rodney, can you go back a slide or to the map? Yeah. So remember where Asia, you see Ephesus and you see Asia. So it says this went on for a period of two years. So that not only did the people in Ephesus come to hear about Christ, and received the gospel. But he said people all over Asia. In other words, here's what happened. Paul used Ephesus as a church planting center. That once the gospel took root there in Ephesus, it radiated out throughout Asia. It's a very good church planting strategy. In fact, that's what the North American Mission Board is doing right now. Going to the major cities of the world, like Boston. And said, okay, if we can get the gospel to take root in Boston, then it can go throughout New England. That's the same principle that was involved here. That Paul was not just taking the gospel to Ephesus. Yes, he did take it to Ephesus. And yes, a church was born there. But then the gospel radiated throughout all of Asia. So he was three months in the synagogue, two years at the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And so he spent... Two years and three months, at least two years and three months in Ephesus. Now, if you, if you want to, in case you read this later, you get confused. Um, trying to, it just hit me that there's another reference. I'm trying to think of where it is. I should have written it down. But later in the text, you'll find in Acts, if you're reading the text, it says that Paul was in Ephesus for three years. And so people have, have looked at what, if somebody finds that reference, let me know where that is. It says that Paul was in Ephesus for three years, and, and here it says he was in Ephesus for two months, I mean, two years and three months. So people will say, wait a minute, what, what's wrong here? What's the problem here? Well, in the Jewish way of accounting for things, uh, for time, if you spent part of a year in something, that was considered, you could call it a year, that you were there for a full year. So if he was there for two years and three months, it's just as adequate and right to say he was there for three years. So just in case you saw that later in your reading, we're confused by it, I wanted to bring it up. So, 
Here's the reason I said this is a time of weeding. Listen very carefully. Paul spent his time in Ephesus two years and three months. Why do you think he spent so much time there? It was because of what was there. Not just because it was going to be a church planning center for the rest of of Asia, but also because of what was there. You see, Ephesus was a great city for two reasons. Write this down if you're taking notes. Ephesus was a great city for two reasons. One was the commercial trade. Uh, We've already talked about that because where it was located, uh, the the sea trade, the land trade, it it was just a great place of commercial trade, kind of like in New York City. But Ephesus was a great place for another reason. And that was because of the pagan idol worship that occurred there. It was a temple in Ephesus. During the Roman period, Ephesus was the epicenter of the worship of the goddess Artemis, sometimes referred to as Diana. The Greeks called her Artemis. The Romans called her Diana. And there in Ephesus, a magnificent temple was built. We're going to put it on the screen. That stood in Ephesus where Artemis or Diana was worshipped, it was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. I just want to take a moment and and try to describe this temple to you. The building had 127 columns, marble columns. How long do you think it would take to make 127 marble columns with the tools that they had in that day? 127 marble columns, and each marble column was 60 feet high. That's six stories. Each marble column, six stories high. That that would be far higher than this wall right here. Far higher. Probably, what, two, three times the height of that wall. So each marble column, two to three times the height of this wall, 60 feet high. 127 of them. The building was 427 feet long. 420, about one and a half football fields, roughly. That's how long it was. 220 feet wide. Now, the reason so many people came there, they, they came from all over the Asia to go to this temple. It was, it was the place that you would come. If you were in that area, it was your goal to come and worship the goddess Artemis or Diana. Uh, with a, Diana is a beautiful name. You'd suppose that this goddess was a beautiful goddess, but she was not. We actually have pictures, if you will, of the figures that they have excavated. Uh, this is Diana or Artemis. Kind of a short, squatty, repulsive-looking character. Uh, covered with many breasts because she was the goddess of fertility for the land as well as for the people. In other words, if you were to go to that temple and you participated in the prostitution that occurred there, this goddess would bless you. It was believed. Uh, it was, you know where, the, where she came from, by the way? The Ephesians believed that she fell out of heaven. That she literally fell out of heaven. And they... When she fell out of heaven, they built her a temple. And people started coming there to worship her. By the way, if you could go back to that temple slide again. I talked about how long would it take to to carve out 125 columns, three times as tall as this wall. 
took 125 years to build the temple. 125 years to build that temple. It was one of the magnificent wonders of the world. I spent a good deal of time on that because I want you to understand that when Paul went to Ephesus, this was not an easy place to share the gospel. When Paul was preaching in Ephesus, this was in fact a difficult place to plant a church. Nonetheless, his teaching and preaching under the influence of the Holy Spirit was so successful that some pretty amazing life change occurred in Ephesus. Read, I was reading this this week again, but I want you to read with me. Uh, starting in verse 17, we'll read down through verse 20. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Now, when what became known? Well, if you read the story before that, well, let's just read it. it it's a good story. <laughs> uh, God did extraordinary, verse 11, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and evil spirits left them. Some Jews... Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. So this was a place where demonic activity was well known. Ephesus was a place where de demonic activity was kind of a regular occurrence, apparently. Because it says these Jews were going around driving out evil spirits. And they tried to invoke, they, they decided, you know, we've seen Paul do this, we can do this too. And so they tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. And they would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, was doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all, and he gave them such a beating they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. I mean, there's some demonic stuff happening in Ephesus. This is not an easy place to plant a church. This is not an easy place to share the gospel. But watch what happens. By the way, you can just write it down on your notes. No matter how bad the demonic power, God's power is always greater. Look what happens, verse 17. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Now, watch this. Many of those who believed, that is, those who put their faith in Christ, now came and openly confessed their what, church? Their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery. So not only do we have a lot of demon possession in Ephesus, but we have a group of people who are involved in witchcraft. They're practicing sorcery. So a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. And when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. I read that this week in my quiet time, and I decided to do a little study on that. And I, I thought, well, how much is 50,000 drachmas? And here's what I discovered. Blew my mind. A drachma was a little silver coin that was basically a one day's wage. So when, when all of these people 
participating in sorcery, and apparently it was a good number. It just says in the text that a number of them, but apparently it was a big number because when they came together and they piled all of their their scrolls together, it was worth 50,000 drachmas. Now let me put that in context for you. If a silver coin, a drachma, is worth, is is basically a day's wage, then 50,000 coins would equal 50,000 days. And I divided that out by 365 days to say, how many years worth of wages is that? And it was, it equals to 137 years. 137 years of wages is what all of that would have cost. I say that again to try to paint the picture of how dark Ephesus was spiritually. Demonic activity, sorcery to such a degree, so many people involved in it, that when they burned all of their stuff, it would have equaled 137 years of wages to buy all of that. And it says in verse 20, in this way the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. I love that. It spread widely and grew in power. Now, not only did they did the gospel take such root that they burned all of their scrolls, there's something else that happened. The gospel took root in Ephesus to such a degree that it began to hurt the economy. Here's what I mean. You see, in Ephesus... One of the great things that made a lot of money, if you'll go to that slide with with Diana again, they had little silver images of Diana that you could buy at the temple. Those of you who went to Costa Rica with me, you remember going down to Costa Rica, and they got the little, is it Nacrita? Is that what she was called? Nacrita? Yeah, you remember buying all, they sold at at the, uh, um, what was that called, Donna? Basilica, thank you. At the Basilica, you could buy these little Nacrita uh, figurines, and, and a lot of people would buy them. They'd come there from all over Costa Rica to worship there, and they would buy these little figurines to take back home. Same thing happened in Ephesus. Huge temple there in Ephesus. Magnificent facility in Ephesus. And the silversmith, they had a good thing going. Because they would make these little figurines of Diana. Hey, not only can you worship her here in Ephesus, you can take her home with you. You can set her up in your living room and you can worship her there too. And so if you're a good pagan, of course, that's what you're going to do. You're going to shell out some money and you're going you're to buy you a figurine, a silver figurine of Diana because you want her to bless you. Now, let's see what happens. This, this is very interesting. Uh, chapter 19, verse 23. About that time, as God was working and the church was growing, about that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. That is the gospel, the, the followers of Jesus. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. In other words, he was making good money at this, Right? He called them together along with the workmen in related trades and said, Men, you know we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. Notice how the gospel is spreading. 
He says, I love this, he says that man-made gods are no gods at all. How dare him? Paul actually says that man-made gods are no gods at all. Now look what he says verse 27. There is a danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. So he said, we, we need to do something. We're about to lose our income here. It's pretty bad when your god <laughs> is going to lose her divine majesty uh, because... Someone else is sharing truth. When they heard this, verse 28, when they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus and Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. Apparently Paul wasn't there or they would have seized him and rushed as one man into the theater. Now, for those of you who have been to Ephesus. I'm told, I haven't been there, I'm told that that theater would seat about 24,000, 25,000 people. That's a pretty big theater, especially in that day. So imagine 24, 25,000 people running into this theater and, and they hear this commotion and so this crowd is running there. Paul's traveling companions and rushed as one man into the theater Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. <laughs> they just saw a bunch of people running into the theater, and they just heard a big commotion, and they went to see what it was all about. Here's, here's what I want you to see. The church is now well established, and the church now is, is, is now making a difference in its community. All right? So let's go to the next, to the next slide. I'm about out of time. This would be a good place to stop. Let's get this one in. Nurturing. Uh, oh, by the way, the reason I said weeding, the reason I said number two is weeding. For those two years and three months, what Paul was doing, he kept pushing back the darkness. He kept declaring the truth. He kept uh, explaining to them the, the, the problems of what they were doing. He was pulling out the false doctrine. He was weeding the area of the paganism. That, that's what I meant by weeding. So we come now to this third one, uh, and the third one is nurturing. If we're taking a time-lapse picture, it's nurturing. About A.D. 57, about a year after Paul left the church, he's traveling still on a missionary journey, and he's on his way back to Jerusalem. And he wanted to stop and speak to the leaders and the elders of the church at Ephesus. So he's on his way back. Now, you see Ephesus there in the blue circle. He's on his way back to Jerusalem, but he knows, have you ever been in one of these situations? He knows, if I stop and talk to them, I'm going to be there a while. Come on, get honest. You know what I'm talking about. And so Paul knows, if I go to Ephesus, I'm going to be there a while. And I'm trying to get to Jerusalem by the next festival. I, I've kind of got a deadline to get to, to, to Jerusalem. And so he comes up with a plan. Next slide. The next plan, he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to call for the Ephesian elders to meet me on the island of Miletus, which is not far uh, 
from where he was at. So Paul made his, uh, this arrangement for them to meet him on the island of Miletus, not far from, from Ephesus. And in Acts chapter 20, he makes what many would refer to as his farewell address to the church. So we're going to read that and we'll close with this. Acts chapter 20, verse 13. <clears throat> he went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Assos, where we were going to take Paul aboard. And he had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. And when, when he met us at Assos, he took him aboard and went on to Mytilene. And the next day that we set sail from there and arrived off Chios. And the day after that, we crossed over to Samos and, and on the following day arrived at Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia. For he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. For Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. And when they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you? And from the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears. And although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared both to the Jews and the Greeks, and they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that in prison, that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of grace. And then he goes on, for sake of time, uh, he, he says some more things, and they kneel down and they pray together. Verse 36, when he had said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. Had to say goodbye to their pastor, knowing they'd never see him again. Now, he still hasn't written the letter we call Ephesians. That's next week.